You are listening to the 34th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, in which Daredevil comes face-to-face with his own personal devil in a bid to get his radar sense back. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, but you, of course, can call me Dave. This week, we hit our last stop on the Frank Miller read-through before a one-week break, and we're wrapping up the publication year 1981, which is a publication year that changed Daredevil. Need proof? Okay. Elektra. She's still in the Marvel Universe. She currently has her own ongoing series. Bullseye went from a pretty average villain in terms of recognizability to a force to be reckoned with, somebody who's faced Punisher, somebody who supported his own miniseries. Kingpin. Perception of Kingpin now is he is Daredevil's arch nemesis to the point that he is the nemesis in the Daredevil Netflix series. And the Hand. The whole ninja clan is still around in the Marvel Universe and they faced other heroes such as Wolverine. And then there's Matt himself, who has evolved to become something more. He's not just the knockoff Spider-Man or Red Batman. He's got his own style, his own identity now, courtesy of one Frank Miller. But with all these additions that have come in 1981, beginning a sort of renovation of the character in his world, where is Matt mentally? That is what we're actually going to find out in this week's issue, Daredevil number 177, the December 1981 issue. It features a cover by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, in which Daredevil leaps out of the mouth of a demon, a multi-eyed monster, and the cover dress adds, in his strangest adventure. And then we have one blurb that says, yes we did, we dared to publish this, the most offbeat story of the year. I'm sure there were much odder things that year. The funny thing about the cover is, it's off-putting, and it's supposed to be. It looks more at home for Doctor Strange rather than Daredevil. Now, additionally, Daredevil himself looks quite on model. He looks more classic, but he's leaping out of the mouth of this thing. There's a part of me that would look at this and go, ah, I don't want to buy that. That looks horrible. There's a lot of zipatone. However, I can see a young Dave, if I time traveled, looking at this and saying, you know what? I think I kind of got to check this out. And here's why. A banner across the top shows beginning September 12th on NBC, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which was one of my favorite cartoons of all time. It also aired alongside the Incredible Hulk cartoon, which I loved to death. Couple of tidbits about Spider-Man and his amazing friends and Daredevil. Matt Murdock made a small appearance in an episode entitled Attack of the Arachnoid. Matt Murdock was charged with defending Spider-Man. For just an extremely brief shot, we actually see Daredevil himself. Now, most of that's listed on Wikipedia, but the thing that I like is the second episode entitled The Crime of All Centuries, which involves Craven. If you look at the marquee at the movie theater, you can see that the movie that is playing stars Simon Williams along with Miss Karen Page. That's right, look closely, it is on Netflix. Blink and you'll miss it, but it is there. All of this discovered thanks to my workout in which I watch Spider-Man and his amazing friends on my phone while walking the treadmill or the stationary bike. And that workout momentarily came to a close as I hit pause and scroll. So, you're welcome. All in all, that shouldn't be this thing that stands out on the cover, and yet, for me, it currently is. 
So the story up to now. The Kingpin hired ninja assassins The Hand to kill Matt Murdock to motivate Daredevil to eliminate them. But former lover turned bounty hunter and assassin Elektra intervened and prevented Matt's death and wiped out the New York Sanctum of The Hand and their main force, the super ninja Kirigi. Still, one of The Hand's attempts, an explosion, has knocked out Matt Murdock's radar sense and he has sought out his mentor, Stick, to train him to get it back. And that is where we will pick up right after this podcast promo. to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. Akers Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And we are back to cover Daredevil number 177. The story is entitled Where Angels Fear to Tread. It was written and penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, and colored by Glennis Ween. If you are reading along, this is reprinted in the Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 Trade Paperback, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and Marvel Digital, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. It is Monday in the basement of Matt Murdock's Brownstone. Daredevil and Stick prepare to get Matt's radar sense back. But Stick says that his mentoring will not be easy and Matt's radar problems aren't just physical and he may not survive the experience. Stick orders Matt to shoot an arrow, but Matt misses the target, getting a rap on the shoulder from Stick's staff for this trouble. Stick orders Matt to take aim again. It's just him and the target, but when Matt does take aim, a bright light appears and suddenly Matt can see, but the world is in black and white. Matt finds that he is not alone, holding the bat he played with as a kid when a booming voice bellows that Matt will not play. He'll study every chance he gets. Suddenly, an adult Matt is standing face to face with Jack Murdock, and we see the promise Matt made in that famous scene, except this is a full-grown Matt instead of an eight-year-old. He may be eight-year-old size, but it's definitely the Matt Murdock we know. Jack chains a stack of books to Matt's wrists and sends him to his room, but a baseball hits Matt on the side of the head on the way. Suddenly, Matt is surrounded by the childhood bullies who tormented him, and they are ganging up on him again. Matt comes back to reality in the brownstone and takes a shot with a bow and arrow, missing the target again. Matt tells Stick about the vision, and Stick explains that the things that he saw in there are obstacles within Matt's mind. But even so, those obstacles could well kill him. Elsewhere, annoyed at being locked out of the brownstone, Heather decides to call up Rico, the disco man, to visit a new club that just opened. Meanwhile, at the Daily Bugle, Ben Urich has written a story on mayoral candidate Randolph Winston Cherry tying him to organized crime. J. Jonah Jameson likes the story, but it's a dangerous story to print, so he needs Urich to be extremely sure of his facts. So let's take a moment here to look over the last few pages. The opening page isn't much to look at. It's Matt holding a bow and arrow with his Daredevil costume on, hood off, and Stick is standing in the background, but Matt looks sharp. For some reason, this figure just looks sleek. 
and we have the addition of the bow and arrow. And just a note, we haven't seen much of Stick so far, and the thing is, we don't need to. Stick is a clear archetype of the sort of wise mentor, Merlin to Matt's King Arthur, so to speak. So we've kind of come into this character with a preloaded conception, and for the most part, it's actually an accurate one. With the bow and arrow present, because it's outside of Matt's normal wheelhouse, it looks odd in this context. However, for you and I, if you've been listening to the show, we went over Man Without Fear. We know that this bow and arrow and taking target practice is kind of a point of origin. It's a little wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey, I admit, because Man Without Fear came after this. However, that's Frank Miller giving context for this scene. He's actually enriching previous stories by adding them to a later one. Matt's primary training began with shooting a bow and arrow. This is how Stick taught him to focus initially. So what we are actually seeing here, though it's not on the page, it's not even in the real context of the original issue as it was presented 10 years prior to Man Without Fear, we're seeing Matt go back to basics, back to stage one. And Matt also mentions being Monday that this has been three days and he has not had any sleep. Sleep deprivation is kind of an interesting concept. It makes sense after three days that Matt would be seeing hallucinations. Also adds stress to the mix and physical exertion as well as an injury that wasn't too far back. Sure, you start seeing things. When I was a young man of 20-something, I used to stay up all night. Sometimes I would go maybe a whole day without sleep. I'd like to see me try that now, but at one point my friend and I were driving in a serene location and he mentioned this looks like a place that you would see Bilbo cross the road, and sure enough, I saw Bilbo Baggins crossing a road. That was the moment I realized it was time to go to bed. The hallucination we see, although it goes across several pages and uses a great artistic idea of putting the flashback elements in black and white with Matt in full color, as well as playing with scale with making Matt smaller when he's standing face-to-face with Jack Murdock, around his eight-year-old size, but Jack looks huge by our conception of a normal-sized Matt. This whole thing happens in a blink, and yet we get a lot from this character. Something we've been, I wouldn't say lacking, I don't think it's fair to say that. We've been working on Daredevil's world in terms of what Miller's been putting on the table. But it was definitely time to get in Matt's head and redefine him a little bit. The bat is a great piece of symbolism. It's something from his whole other life before the accident, really before the promise, when he was just a regular kid, before Jack Murdoch pushed him to study, 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 which of course brought about the bullying and so on and so forth. It's a symbol of another life that is now gone, but it's also the symbol of a potential other life had things gone differently, had Matt not been held down to the point that Jack held him down to. And I say that to segue to this. We see Matt chained to the books, like a ball and chain. During Man Without Fear, I talked about how Daredevil's visage, the costume, was sort of a a face of the victim. The nickname was the name that kids called him when he was being bullied. The costume in that context was based on Jack Murdoch's wrestling costume. Of course, Jack Murdoch was killed by crime, and of course, Matt was bullied, so he's basically wearing a big middle finger on his body. The thing is, something like that, a mentality where you are wearing that face and putting it out there and doing some of the things Matt is doing, has to mentally wear on you. It's a form of homage, but the flip side is... It's also a weight, and Matt has really denied both for most of his Daredevil career. What we're looking at is having his sneaky lawyer's trick, as I call it, in Daredevil, a way to slip out of his promise to Jack, it's seeing this come under cross-examination. For as much as Matt is a swashbuckling adventurer and idealist, he's also a rational lawyer. His job is to argue and find elements to argue with, and that goes as far as for Matt to call himself out on his own crap. 
And Miller successfully tied this mentality in to Man Without Fear. Again, a decade after this issue. This issue is very pivotal to what Man Without Fear would become. I've seen it described as a retelling of the origin, and yeah, that's true, but it's more of a retelling of the psychological origin. And as we get deeper into the story, this cross-examination is going to get more and more intense. And this opening salvo was perfect to give us the visual cues that yes, this is in Matt's mind. Yes, these are the things Matt's mind is processing. And in the physical world, we have a physical cipher to tell us where Matt's mind is in coming to some sort of conclusion or a place of peace. And then as this segment wrapped up, we saw Heather being a trifling whore. She calls up Rico. He's a putz. Why is she calling him? Oh, wait, that's right. He knows all the disco moves. But that's not really a great big plot point. We're just keeping track of Heather because, well, somebody has to. But the main thing is that's being seeded in this issue and will not become a great big plot piece until after next week, after we take our Batman break, is Yurik writing this story about Cherry and his ties to organized crime and what that could mean for the Bugle. Not only do we have a moody set piece with J. Jonah Jameson's window casting his name on the wall, but we also get this intense side of Jonah that we don't normally see telling Yurik to check his facts. That's swell that Jameson is checking his facts. Because we know how well he's done checking his facts and stating that Spider-Man is a menace. That he's tied into Dr. Octopus or Vulture or whatever villain is happening that month. But Jameson isn't worried about Spider-Man suing him. He is worried about Cherry, a prominent citizen suing the Bugle. And rightfully so. And this is something that's going to play out, but I really like this scene a lot. It felt like a Lou Grant moment. One thing that Miller may not get enough credit for is redefining a bit a certain side of the Daily Bugle. And that's not to dismiss what has gone on within the book of Spider-Man itself, but Miller gives it a moody, moody atmosphere. And you actually feel like Jonah is a grounded character, that Jonah is a competent boss in his field. So kudos to Miller for that. But I know what you're thinking. We're not worried about what's going on with Heather. We're not really all that worried yet about what's going on with the Daily Bugle. What is going on with Matt? Back at the Brownstone, it is Wednesday, and Matt is once again gearing up to take his shot with the bow and arrow. Exhausted, Matt falls into another hallucination, this time of the truck that he saved the old man from and found himself blinded. Reliving the moments of his origin, Matt reaches out for the old man, angry that he has been blinded, and Matt misses the shot in the real world. The Daily Bugle, meanwhile, has published their story on Cherry, and the man himself is standing in front of Wilson Fisk, aka the Kingpin. Cherry berates the Kingpin for not burying the connection deep enough. And Kingpin puts Cherry in his place as a simpering slave for Fisk's empire, and states that he will tend to this. J. Jonah Jameson contacts the storefront law firm, which is in shambles since the bomb blew up, and it seems that Jolly Jonah needs a lawyer. By Friday, Matt is still missing the target and still exhausted. He hallucinates once again. This time, he sees Jack Murdock in the boxing ring, and the two spar a bit while Jack berates Matt for not keeping his promise. But Jack is suddenly struck down by an arrow, and when Matt looks up, a monstrous devil is in the ring, and it is there to claim Matt. Let's break again right here and take a closer look at what we've read. When the story started, it was three days without sleep. Now it is Wednesday, so we're looking at five days without sleep for Matt. Even in a peak specimen like Matt Murdock, cognitive functions are starting to fade. Again, not to mention that there's physical exertion and an injury to think about. So, of course, the hallucinations are getting more vibrant and more visceral. Matt shows some anger towards the guy that he saved way back in Daredevil number one, the one that led to his blindness. 
Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Well, he did pop up again in a miniseries that I may or may not eventually cover. Those of you that have read it know what I'm talking about. But this anger is, I don't want to say it's righteous anger, but it is realistic anger. Again, we saw the bat and the life that Matt could have had had this accident not happened. Sure, he would have been bullied. That would have happened either way. But this accident not only blinded Matt, it not only gave him the ability to be Daredevil, it led him to being a pitiful figure, which may or may not have led Jack to the ring to making that decision. In an alternate reality, had this accident not happened, Jack might have taken the fall. Everything might have been normal for Matt. And it's hard to say the anger is justified. After all, an accident is an accident. But I understand the anger. It's easy to understand the anger. That's a very human piece of the puzzle for Matt Murdock. This isn't Bruce Banner who built a bomb and that bomb blew up in his face. This isn't Reed Richards who decided to push through and take a space flight and then got bombarded with cosmic rays. This is somebody who was in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the right thing. Again, Matt's idealism, his natural need to be heroic, overruled his common sense and he leapt in front of a truck and ended up getting blinded for it. Kind of the idea that no good deed goes unpunished. So yeah, I would say that this is something where Matt would and should be angry. Not because it's justified, but because he has to process this horrible accident that's happened to him. And I don't think until this moment, Matt ever realized how angry he was at this whole debacle that ended with him being blind. Now this is always going to be a double-edged sword because, as I mentioned, it led to him becoming Daredevil. Which has some degree of personal satisfaction in what he does. In the idea that he makes a difference. But right now, there's a child Matt Murdock that's been repressed because of the Matt Murdock we saw in Man Without Fear. That Matt Murdock who decided there are rules, and this is how the rules go, and they are stringent. But here's a, here's a backdoor to those rules. But a child nonetheless. And that child has not been let out. Matt is a very repressed person. Even as Daredevil, which allows him some degree of release, his primary emotions are cut off at the core. He's not a very open person. Not to say he is closed off. He's not quite Batman, where he just completely ignores his emotions. He's just not very good with them. And the child in him is coming out and rebelling. Now, moving from Matt's internal rebellion to the political aspect, which, again, I'm not going to get too far into, because that's going to play out a little bit more in subsequent issues, but it did occur to me, Fisk has been back in power for a short period of time, and yet he's already got his hands in the political pot. Kingpin wastes no time. He jumps right into the pool, feet first, and goes all the way to the bottom. I mean, he is fully immersed. Speaking of immersion, Foggy and Becky just happen to be at the wrecked storefront at the time that J. Jonah Jameson happens to call. How convenient. It shouldn't stand out, but it does. And bear in mind, it's also lucky that the phone still works. For those that don't remember, in 1981, the phone service actually had to come to your house and install the phone. They came to your house and wired it permanently into the wall. All of that to say that had the building sustained that much damage, the phone was probably not likely to work since it's wired into the core electrical elements of the place. But we're back to Matt on Friday, day seven without sleep. The world record of a person going without sleep was 11 days. The thing is, at this stage, the mind and the body begin to suffer. Internal organs begin to suffer. It's detrimental to your health. So Matt is not in a good place physically. He's not in a good place mentally. But he went into that with a lot of this baggage. And within this intensity is when Jack finally appears and berates Matt. 
the lawyer's loophole, the sneaky lawyer's trick that is Daredevil, which slips him out of a promise he made to Jack Murdock, doesn't stand up against cross-examination. Matt is finally calling himself out, so we've seen him go from that child Matt Murdock acting out against something that was unjust to an adult Matt Murdock calling himself out by way of Jack Murdock. Is it convoluted? A little bit. Is it good fodder for examination? Most certainly. Matt made a promise that he would hit nothing but the books, and he would not fight. As Jack says, he's fought far more than Jack ever fought. And sure, he was Daredevil when he did it, but what's inside Daredevil's costume? It's Matt Murdock, and this serves to show that. And visually, it's been keyed up from the beginning of the issue, because Matt is in his Daredevil costume from neck down, but his hood is off. So essentially, this is Matt Murdock kind of in this in-between phase. He has to face the repercussions of both sides of his identity. It's a very excellently thought-out issue, and it's digging deep, deep into the tissue of Matt Murdock. And I think it's helped with the read-through that we read Man Without Fear first, and we've been able to establish this idea of the sneaky lawyer's trick, because, remember, this was reversed. Ten years later, Miller would revisit the origin and sneak in some of these elements. And then we get the devil. A personal devil. I wanted to cry foul so hard because I was convinced we would see a John Lovett-style Daredevil or worse yet, a phantom version of Matt facing himself. But actually, the thing that saves this particular instance is that the devil in question is the demonic creature from the cover, and he actually looks fairly frightening. He looks like he was drawn from old occult pictures rather than something ridiculous. He doesn't look like hot stuff. And yes, I know Luke, Jack, and Eddie and I are a little disappointed in that, because that crossover really could have worked, but this looks like something grotesque is inside of Matt. And when we carry around negativity, when we carry around stress, especially on the level Matt's at, and we're under duress, these things feel like a fungus inside of us. And this is what's been growing inside Matt. Because it's been allowed to progress for years, and because these emotions are buried so deep and they're so potent, this thing has been allowed to grow in Matt's mind, to this genuinely terrifying image. On a surface read-through, it's an eye roll. Looking at it with deep examination, it's pretty stout imagery. So we're going to get into that in just a moment, but I know what you're thinking. While Matt's facing the devil, what is Foggy doing? Foggy consults with Jameson on the cherry case and demands a sizable advance, clearly succeeding as Jameson grumbles. Heather is at a cocktail party when Rico makes a snide comment about Matt. Heather dumps her drink on the disco man's face and storms off. Meanwhile, Matt faces down his demon, the manifestation of his anger at being bullied at the death of Jack Murdock as well. Matt declares that he is not afraid, and now he is no longer angry. So he shoots the devil right in the eye. In the real world, Matt has just hit the bullseye on the target, and to prove it is not a fluke, he splits the arrow. Twice. But Stick isn't done teaching and the old man shoots at Matt, who suddenly feels the arrow with his radar sense and deflects it in mid-air. Daredevil is repaired, but the hand are crushed, and when Kingpin looks at the results of Elektra's handiwork at the Sanctum, he immediately puts out the order to find her. And so ends Daredevil number 177. Some additional thoughts. J. Jonah Jameson traditionally hates spending money. I mean, Peter Parker practically has to beg him just to pay him wage for the pictures that he shoots of Spider-Man. And here we have Foggy being the Batman of the judicial world once again, and he's playing Jameson like a fiddle. And it is hilarious. 
It's also satisfying to see Foggy sort of redeem himself from his perceived inability to keep the storefront law firm afloat. And then there's Heather and Rico. Admittedly, there was more Rico in this than I remembered on my initial read-through. So I've been doing the Rico for quite a while. So for your listening pleasure, a snippet of Rico Suave. Rico. Suave. Rico. Ah, Gerardo, we barely knew you. So let's get down to brass tacks, though. The fight between the devil and Matt seemed to go very, very quickly. It seemed to resolve itself without any real climax, at least from my reading experience. However, looking at the issue as a whole, the battle had been fought all the way through, from page one on to the end. It just naturally escalated. Because the battle isn't with the devil. Clearly, I don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to get that. The battle was with the bullies, with Jack Murdoch, with Matt Murdoch himself. But, playing armchair scriptwriter, what I would have done was have a scene where Jack Murdoch, or at least the manifestation of Jack Murdoch, forgives Matt and tells him to keep up the good work. That, symbolically, would have just totally melted my heart. Maybe, done right, caused me to have some tissues handy. But we see this transformed, repaired Matt Murdoch after this. Everything Frank Miller has done to this point has been to build the world around him. Now, we're going to tweak some things within Daredevil. To Miller's credit, he already saw the potential in the character. Bear in mind, his tweaks on Daredevil were minute, at least within the run itself, within the original context. And since this is kind of closing out the renovation period, we also see this Matt Murdock at the zenith of his own restoration. He's shedding off the past the way Daredevil has been written and perceived up to this date. He's also coming to peace with it. Almost like coming to peace with the fact that some of the issues through Daredevil's run have been less than stellar. A lot of writers never got a grip. Even Marv Wolfman admitted that he just couldn't make it work. Is that the fault of the character or the fault of the writer? I'm not sure. But now we have a Daredevil who is not haunted by his past. He is firmly looking forward to the future. He's taking things head on, and this is symbolically shown by Stick shooting him from behind, and Matt effortlessly deflects the arrow. So Matt has been minutely torn down, he's given a fresh coat of paint, and now he's ready to really face the real crucible that's about to come in this run. And on that note, we see Fisk realizing Elektra's handiwork, becoming fascinated with her. This is going to lead to that crucible. We're closing out 1981. 1982 will bring some of the most seminal Daredevil stories ever put to paper. And the fact that a lot of things were put on the board through this year of 1981 that writers would mine for years and years to come, for good or for ill, is something pretty darn monumental, in my opinion. In real time, you and I are going to be going through the rest of this run in about three months. Reading it in such a quick succession definitely gives you a feeling of... This stuff is moving fast, but bear in mind, this was a year in the life of a comic book. Started out as a bi-monthly, went monthly. We are seeing how a comic can be reborn. Part of me really wants to question why modern day comics don't attempt this feat. At least with more regularity, most of the time the go-to option is to reboot it with a new number one. And yet, what we've seen Miller do is not reboot it at all. 
Just a simple renovation. There's been no renumbering. What has been put on the table that is fresh and completely new is a very small part of, and that's Electra. You could say that the hand and sticker are kind of part of that too, but the hand are villains. Villains can be thrown in at any time. A character like Electra, who kind of plays both sides of the field, is a little bit trickier to maintain, but not out of the range. What Miller has done is take the raw elements of Daredevil and make them work. He's brought things in from the Marvel Universe, things that were established, and he's given them their own voice in the Kingpin, in Bullseye. And now we've seen Matt Murdock really shed off a lot of his past. He's come face to face with that origin, and he's moved on. That doesn't mean there's not a lot more stuff Miller can heap on him, but believe you me, he will be heaping. But Miller used the toolbox that was already there. To give you a bit of a fanboy description of what we're looking at, Jeff Bridges' line in the first Iron Man movie that Tony Stark made this arc reactor out of spare parts in a cave is exactly what Miller did. He didn't upend the character. He didn't reboot the book. If anything, he used more of what was already on the table from McKenzie's run and made it his own. Like a magic trick happening before our eyes. So I'm looking forward to sharing with you what happens from here. Because now we've built the playground. It's just time to play on it. But that's going to wait for about two weeks. Next week we have the Batman episode, so we'll be taking a break from Frank Miller for one week. But the show's not over yet. Next up, the latter half of the long overdue mailbag right after this podcast promo. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. And from there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromalongbox.com.
All right, time to clean out the email inbox. This will literally empty out my email box, which means I need you, the listeners, to start sending emails to dave at daredevilpodcast.com. As stated, there won't be emails next week because next week is a special episode, but after that I would like to resume putting the emails in the show. I'll get to that again in just a moment when we're done with these emails. The first email this week is from Edward, and the subject line is Tweaks. Edward writes, Dave, you'll be happy to know that your recent tweaks to the format of your show meet with my full approval. Congratulations, I think they are a good move. Besides that, I have found your reflections on Matt's idealizing tendency intriguing. I think that you're right about it. Matt sees things in a way that is almost ideological. To call him an ideologue is to say too much, but in my opinion the title idealist says too little. He does not just impose his ideology on others, but then neither does he just move things from where they stand to closer to his ideals. He looks at Jack in a certain way, in my opinion, and he looks at Electra, Foggy, Bullseye, Mila, and the others in that same way. He doesn't see them all the same, but, well, I don't quite have words for that way. I say he tends to idealize things, but I feel there's more to say and I cannot say it, therefore I would like you to say it for me. Congratulations. I will be listening to any further reflections in this regard that your reading selections lead you to make and enjoying myself every week with your weekly episode of the podcast. Sincerely, Edward. I'm glad to hear you liked the tweaks, Edward. Of course, the email coming back to the show, I think... I feel better about that in the long run, but I like the more streamlined lead-up to that. It leads to more time with the comic itself. So, Matt and his idealism. I think I get what you're trying to say. Matt's not a tyrant. Matt doesn't expect everybody to see things as he does. Because he is unique in that he doesn't technically see. For Matt, I think it's a matter of faith. Not in the religious sense, but the desire to see good. There's so much bad in Matt's life. There's so much bad in Matt's background that for all that bad, he has to see the opposite side of the coin, that there is good. The bullies were mean to him. Jack was kind to him. The bullies tore him down. Jack built him up. For Matt, I think to continue to be Matt on both sides of the equation as himself, as Daredevil, there has to be some guiding light. And I agree, idealistic is not the best term not even optimistic or positive. So I think passionate still plays better because he's passionate about being Daredevil. He's passionate about the law. He's passionate about even Heather. And for Matt, that comes with the ideal of his faith in humanity and his faith in the good that has to counteract the bad that he sees. For Matt, it's the scales of justice. It's fairness. I don't think he sees somebody like Jack as absolutely perfect, but in the philosophical sense, he is the perfect Jack Murdoch. He was the perfect father for Matt. Would Foggy have blossomed in the same way as Matt did under Jack's care? Probably not. So, in the end, I don't know if Matt whitewashes everything, or he just chooses to say, you know, Dad did the best he could. Dad pushed me because he loved me. Maybe he didn't give me all the hugs in the world, but darn it, he wanted what was best for me. And that view of Jack kind of stems to the rest of the world. Again, because there are bad things out there. Because Daredevil faces those bad things. There has to be good, and he will find any shred of good that will counterbalance the bad. Is that something that's easily put in one term? Absolutely not. But that's why we have this podcast. But thank you for that email, Edward. I'll be kind of working through that as we go further and further into this read-through. Because with all the stuff that's coming down Matt's way, we're going to need that mindset. But next up is an email from Eddie G, chairman of the board with a subject line, episode 29, Gang War. Eddie writes, Dave, love the podcast, man. I look forward to hearing and following Dee Dee's adventures with every week. 
As I've said before in previous emails, DD was my go-to comic book, and now, because of the podcast and the fact that you've got me reading along again, I feel like a preteen waiting for each issue to come out so I could see what happens next. Once again, awesome. In this issue's recap, you briefly touched on the end of Dee Dee and Bullseye's fight, where they're choking each other out. For some reason, that scene has always stuck out for me. I love the way Dee Dee is in the bottom, yet even from a clear disadvantage, he still has the stamina to out-choke Bullseye. The panels are set out brilliantly, and I don't remember seeing such a striking scene like that in any other books. Some originality. Anyway, buddy, keep making podcasts gold, and you'll have me as your avid listener for the long haul, Eddie G, chairman of the board. And you know, Eddie, I'm going to actually echo what you say. The fight scenes between Daredevil and Bullseye were unlike things we had seen before in any other book. They were intimate, they were up close, and we're dealing with two combatants who just don't know when to quit. They're both skilled, they both have motivations that are extremely strong and extremely deep-rooted. For Bullseye, especially in the first fight, it's getting rid of all the devils. It's almost a religious fervor. And for Matt, in that same fight... It's about giving him a chance. It's about stopping him from killing people and potentially really repairing this man. One aspect of the legal system is the idea that somebody can go to prison and become reformed. That there is a benefit to the punishment. So there's kind of a, to build on the what I just talked about, there's kind of a, a reward for Matt in the idea that Bullseye could be reformed. That the justice system may actually work and just make a productive citizen of some kind out of such a wretched, wretched man. So that is faith rewarded. In the second fight, Matt's had his faith crushed a little. The legal system didn't work. As soon as Bullseye was released, he's right back to killing again. And now that Matt took that leap of faith, it's on him. His hands are bloody. So when you get into that position where Bullseye has Matt on the floor, they're just choking each other. I mean, we're not even looking at skills. There's nothing being thrown. There's no billy clubs. It's just choke or be choked. It's a schoolyard fight. And Matt has just enough motivation in that broken faith to push through and outchoke Bullseye. And I think Miller realizes what emotion is in between these two characters because he's going to build that and turn up the volume loud and it's going to hurt very, very soon. But I'm glad that you love the podcast. That makes me feel great. I want you to always look forward to a new episode coming out. One final email this week from Ryan Daly, subject line, episode 31. Ryan writes, Hi Dave, I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of weeks now after Shag gave it a shout out on the Fire and Water podcast. You're doing a terrific job and I'm having a blast revisiting these classic DD stories from the Frank Miller run. Thanks to my subscription to Marvel Digital Unlimited, I don't have to lug around my giant omnibus hardcover. I can listen to your recap and analysis while skimming the comic on my iPhone or iPad. Regarding the content of episode 31 in particular, I've been catching up on Boardwalk Empire and HBO Go, and I watched Charlie Cox's first appearance on the show about two hours before the news broke that he was cast as Matt Murdock. My initial thought was, well, he can certainly play haunted Irish Catholic pretty well, but I was a little let down that Marvel and Netflix weren't going with a bigger name. Not Michael C. Hall, but someone with a little more recognizability. That skepticism, however, went away the more I watched Cox on the show, and the more I considered it, and now I'm of the same opinion as you. Charlie Cox can own the role and become the face of Daredevil in a way that a better-known actor might not have been able. As for Daredevil number 174, I've always had a fondness for Gladiator much more than Bullseye and Kingpin, and his characterization throughout his story arc is really fun to revisit. 
this era is probably my favorite part of Frank Miller's run, the lead-up to issue 181, where every new facet of Daredevil mythos that feels like oft-repeated tropes today still feel new and fresh. Keep up the good work. I enjoy your podcast every week. We've had not only Charlie Cox cast, and I'm glad that you do agree with me, and I'm hoping a lot of core Daredevil fans do get on board. Most of the reaction has been positive, and I think it should be. We get to own this version of Daredevil. Now, true, because this could end up like the Rex Smith Daredevil, but the direction they're leaning with somebody like D'Onofrio as the kingpin has me extremely excited, which runs the risk of major disappointment, but I'm good with that. But to go to Ryan's specific points beyond the Netflix series, Gladiator's depiction in this is very underrated. It's been reused. Bendis used it like a quarterback taking a football to the end zone. And reading this, and thanks to Luke Giaconetti mentioning an issue, I put an issue on the docket that wasn't originally on there because this characterization is so important to me now. Kind of like my outlook on Elektra has changed, my love of Gladiator has grown simply from doing the show and doing the extensive reading. So I'm actually adding Daredevil number 226 to the run, just to make sure we give Melvin his due. And in the past, I've overlooked Melvin, but... Here he is, looking me right in the face, and it is magnificent. I'm glad to hear that you are using Marvel Digital Unlimited. I love the service. Is it perfect? No. Does it need some work? Yes. Do I feel like they're putting work into it? Most certainly. There's been improvement at leaps and bounds. So I'm glad that you are reading along. That means a lot to me. As you said, we're leading up to issue 181, where everything kind of starts hitting the fan. However, that's not next week. Next week, Batman. I'll be covering both Batman Daredevil crossovers, and I'm going to talk a lot about my relationship with both characters. I'm going to put them head to head. But lest you think I'm going to slack off on the Bat portion, I'm also going to talk about the long, torrid love affair I had with Batman, and why that love affair sadly ended. But that is seven short days away. For now, drop me an email at dave at daredevilpodcast.com, and until next week, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one! They call a man without fear Never far away Whenever things is near There's devil fight for what is right There's devil fight for you tonight You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at DaveWeeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements, and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast.